Now that that's a that's a good ramp for a song right there. I mean, as far as you know, it's got a long thing there. I could have talked all through that thing going, "Hey, the weather's great outside. We got a great weekend coming up for you." But uh, uh, I always screw it up, and I uh, either have songs that stop dead, and then all of a sudden I'm in a panic catching up, or when there is a long ramp that you could talk over, I don't pay attention to it. Here's what's happening right now: is I am calling uh, our next guest, and I'm uh, uh, really excited to be uh, getting a hold of him right now, Michael Ironside. You're actually hearing the phone ring. Michael. Hey, how are you doing? Good, good, good. Can you hear us okay? I can hear you wonderfully. Fantastic. Uh, you're listening to This American Podcast Comedy Edition on ComedySchoolsRadio.com. It is approximately 10 a.m. It's not FM radio. I don't have to give the exact time. Uh, approximately 10 a.m. Mountain Standard Time. And we are pleased as punch, and I mean that to be, uh, we have on the line with us uh, uh what I consider one of the uh, the great actors, certainly one of the great character actors in America today, or in several other uh, nations as well, Michael Ironside. Good morning, sir. Good morning, Anthony. How are you? I'm doing I'm doing fantastic. Um, uh, I've known you uh, maybe three decades, you know, and uh, uh, had the good fortune to run into you and your and your lovely wife on a plane a couple weeks ago. I saw you guys standing in line. You know, and I thought I'll just surprise him when I come up. But you kind of already knew I was there. You go, hey, how's it going? <laughs> and well, we—it's it's the nature—it's the nature when you know somebody, especially in our business and stuff like that. If they go three days or three years without seeing you, just pick up where you left off. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, you are in—you're—you're uh, you're not. You live in Los Angeles. You are in Carmel right now, though, correct? Yeah, I'm at the film festival in Carmel. We just uh, premiered a picture here last night. What was the, uh, what's the movie? This, the movie is this wonderful little uh, feature that was shot with no money. And uh, it's called The Space Between. It's kind of a family drama, comedy, satire. It's just got everything in it. Amy Jo, do you know who Amy Jo Johnson is? I am familiar with the name, yes. Yeah, yeah, she, she's an actress who decided to uh, try her hand at writing. And I got the script. Um, I saw by accident, because I usually take unsolicited scripts and stuff and then um, critique them and stuff. And I read it once. I read it the second time. I gave it to my wife to read, and I said, I want to do this. And and got my agents on it. It actually cost me money to do it, but it was a, it's an absolutely wonderful, wonderful film. Well, I think that's that's one of the things that, um, uh, you know, there's a few things I want to get into. Um, almost, as you and I are speaking right now, there's some, there's some kid, and when I say kid, some in their teens or 20s, who is uh, uh, crossing the border between Arizona and California or Nevada and California, you know, now in a Prius, you know, when we were younger, it'd be a beat-up Buick, uh, coming and going, I'm going to make it in show business, I'm going to be an actor. The majority of them, within a year, will be crossing back the other way and oftentimes it's because some of it's good fortune some of it's talent some of it's mistakes but you have been a working actor since before i knew you but a consistently a working actor uh the entire time i've known you and i think one of the reasons yeah. you just said that you they, it cost you money to do this movie but it was a labor of love you put the art before the dollar in this instance well i try and do i try and do at least one project a year that isn't totally emotionally and spiritually compromising, but pays the bills, <laughs> and, that me, and, and then it and then it allows me to run off and do you know labors of love. Or I'm of the belief that if you want to keep something, you got to be able to give it away for free. Absolutely. 
you know, and I'm, I love acting. I love the pros. My dad once said that I had, I told a neighbor that I had run off and joined the circus <laughs> when I was about 20. And, uh, you know, and it took me some time to think about it, and he's absolutely true. You know, it's the circus business. It's, you're in it, I'm in it. It's, you know, it's not so much show business, it's circus business. And by that, I mean that if, if a rube walks into a tent and sees the, the human fly crawling up the side of the tent, and they go, oh, my God, how does he do that? And you say to them, are you in the circus? And they say, no, and they say, I can't tell you. <laughs> you know, because, because we're in the business of illusion. We're in the business of... of creating a reality that's alter, you know, that alters, you know, hopefully somebody else's perception of a situation, you know. Well, there's a, um, um, there's a, a great uh, writer and thinker who I'm a fan of, Noam Chomsky, who... Uh, oh, Noam, yeah. Yeah, among many great things he said, and I'm going to, I'll slightly paraphrase, it's been a while since I read, he said, fiction will always be better at telling the human truth than documentary because it's telling what's going on inside, too, where documentary just showing the outside... So in a sense, when you're creating great fiction, you're actually sometimes telling a greater human truth than if you're just going to tell the story flat out the way it happened. Well, I, I, I'm a great believer in storytelling. Yes. You know, it's, a, it's a way of the, it's in all of our cultures, going all the way back to, you know, the first time they found fire, is at the end of the day when things get scary, everyone gathers around the fire and somebody, usually an elder or somebody with an experience, gets up and talks to the people around the fire and tells them a story that has a beginning, a middle, and an end, and usually has some kind of lesson or warning or possibly, you know, beware of this and have your own experience kind of feel about it. And that's what really we've been doing with films and television for a long time. So we go into a dark room and we look through somebody's kitchen window or their bedroom window or from under the kitchen table, and we view a life, you know, and hopefully it has a moral ethical base to it, and we walk away with with some kind of experiential education, you know. Uh, television kind of made us all sit in one room together as a family for a long time. And uh, I don't know about the new platforms. I hope that they sort themselves out. It seems to be all we do on them is watch fake reality, which I don't think is doing anyone any good other than the people that make the shows. You know, there, there's a, I think there's a real hunger for, you know, for drama, for fiction, for comedy in that, uh, you see so many people now migrating away from uh, uh, broadcast and cable into, you know, what the, 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 the nickname is Cutting the Cord. I mean, the other day, my, uh, my wife showed me, she goes, hey, look, because I, I, we, we're a little behind the times on some things, ahead of times the other. And uh, even though we have cable, she goes, now we can watch Netflix, and Netflix has so many great stories on it. You know, they're, they're, they're making these shows. Maybe they're not for a great big giant budget. But I'm not seeing reality shows, you know, on things like Netflix or things that are internet platform based. And uh, so there's always hope where people go, well, no one's watching anymore. We're putting on reality shows. Just how many people can I get to eat a bug uh, that people still go, no, we still crave stories. You uh, have been part of when I mention your name to people that that you don't know, there's, you know, uh, uh, people that I know in Arizona or people I know in Los Angeles. And I've told people going to interview eyes light up there's a lot of actors who work all the time and you mention your name to go no i don't i don't when i mention your name eyes light up because there's some very specific things uh, uh scanners uh, uh total recall uh and splinters so people go oh oh that guy 
So you've been interesting that some of the things that are some of the uh, that people have really strong cult, fo- cult followings of, you've been a part of, and you were a science fiction buff before you got into acting. Yet you oftentimes end up in science fiction projects. Yeah, my, I actually was raised. Well, I was raised on all literature. We didn't. We were very uh, not financially challenged family. My, I used to say poor. My dad would get, get very tight in the back, and so we weren't poor. We just didn't have money, you know. And uh, but no, we, it was really true. And my father on the weekend worked at a place called Charter Press. Uh, he worked for the Toronto Hydro during the week, you know, doing light street light maintenance. And on the on the weekends. He worked as a janitor in this place called Charter Press. And Charter was the company that got to... I'm from Canada. This is in Toronto. I'm talking yeah. about. And they would get all the Penguin and all the different publishing companies for the Canadian rights. They had to go through Charter and some of the printing companies in Canada. So Dad was allowed to, the owner of the company, um, and my dad got along very well, and they would give all the test prints of books and stuff to my father. And uh, so he would bring home stacks of books, and we'd all read, and I was allowed to read anything that was on the floor. He saw my mom and dad's bed. If they'd read it, they'd put it on the floor. And so I had a very strong, very, very open literary, literary, uh, literary background. But my grandfather, his father, was a, a member of the original science fiction club with um, Asanoff and all those people back in the 40s and the 50s before science fiction was acceptable as real literature. Mm-hmm. And, it was a pri- and it was a private club. And, for example, I read Dune in galley form out of a shoebox when I was wow. about eight years old. Um, you know, it was sent to my dad, and on the front, my brother still has it. <laughs> but on the front page it said, here you go, Jock, see if you can find any bugaboos. You know, Frank, <laughs> you know signed, signed Frank. You know, Frank Herbert, and and they would send it to my grandfather, who had an engineering degree in both mechanical and electrical, and see if this made sense to him. You know, and there was and so sci-fi became. My grandfather used to say it allows people to address a drama in a less personal way because it takes it out of the context of their own life. It takes the emotions out of the context of their own life and allows ah. them to view, a, view an emotional or a political situation. You know, with with uh, a little more distance and a little more emotional distance, and hopefully they get it. And uh, for example, Dune was about the the early nineteen after the Second World War and the beginning beginning of the fifties, the oil um, wars and crisis and the birth of Israel as a nation was all what the basis of Dune was, all hidden under the guise of um, you know sci-fi and I think Arrakis, the planet of lakes and trees, was North America and. And the Dune people were the uh, were the Arabs and the Israelites who are, were established there, and, and the makers that made the spice were really oil wells. You know, if you I had you know I had no idea. Now that you say that, you know, uh, that makes absolute one hundred percent sense. A, and it's a and it's a political allegory. It's, it's so I mean, and you know, at seven years old, you're sitting there you're reading this stuff and having somebody coach you through it it just allowed me to open up the idea and the power of true storytelling you know organic storytelling uh a good a mutual friend of ours and and kind of a mentor of mine rich scheidner told me early in my comedy career he uh he goes uh, he goes you'll know when someone is a good comic when you can remember one of their jokes you know, and uh, I go, I go. What do you mean? He goes, he goes. If there's a guy, and you know, he goes, he, he, you talk about comics, and people go, I, I, they're funny. I can't remember their jokes. He goes, they tell one joke, and I also believe that's true about actors. I'm going to jog your memory a little bit, and maybe you can help me with. 
Um, uh, I had met you once or twice at, uh, a long time ago, just briefly. And then I'm watching television one night, and I'm watching. Um, I'm watching. It was a. It was on a science fiction anthology, but I don't think the show was science fiction. See, because I believe that sometimes an actor delivers a line that's so true, kind of, or does a moment that's so real. You know, uh, kind of like Robert Duvall in Lonesome Dove in the scene where they hang Robert Urich. You know, there was there was a reality to that that carried you through the rest of the series. You did a television show where you played a bad guy who was blackmailing a girl into sleeping with you. Um, are you familiar with this at all? That sounds like about half my resume, but go ahead. <laughs> it, it was like a science fiction thing where you're ex- you come over to the couple. Because they had killed someone and you witnessed it. You witnessed them killing someone and then you go over to their house because they killed like her husband so they could be together. But you come over and then you explain that, you know, you saw this and here's the deal. And they go, what do you want? You want money? And your line was, I'll never do it right. But the way you did it, you went, no, I want to share. And it was, you were telling them that you wanted to have the girl during the night and he could have her during the day. There was something, by the way, you did. Unless I'm just sitting around my house watching television and the line made the hair stand up on the back of my head because it was so real. I'm not saying that's what you want to do in real life. As an actor, it just grabbed me. You, do you know which television show this is? No, I'm somewhere around 300 and something plus films and shows. I do remember the scenario, but I don't remember the scenario. It was like a night gallery or, or a Tales from the Crypt, uh, 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 something like that. I know, man, you have done so much work. I'm going, wow, what do we talk to him about? What do we... Talk to him specifically about. Here's what I want to ask you specifically, though. You're from Canada. Uh, uh, one of my best friends is from Canada, Jeff Abagov. He's a uh, he was a TV producer, and now he's writing novels. And often calls my wife for advice on his novels. Um, what is it about? There's so many great artists from Canada. Is there some? What is what is there about Canada that so many of you are able to come here and kind of grab the American whatever the American spirit is and really sh- and really shine it back at us? Well, there was a great Mad Magazine um, piece, of, I think, back in the mid-60s, maybe early 70s, that broke down everyone's nationality all over the world, where they showed pictures of people, little anecdotes, and they said about Canadians, they said, they look just like Americans until they dress to go outside. And they had a picture, <laughs> and they had a picture of a guy, they had a picture of a guy in a toque with earmuffs on and the wrong shirt, and everything like that, and a goofy smile. And, and I think it was National Lampoon referred to Canada as um, America's retarded brother just north <laughs> of the American border. For us in Ca- for us in Canada, because, how do I say this, it's, it, we, we have had such a limited industry, and still do actually, um, across, the whole population of Canada is less than Southern California. Yeah. It's, it's around, I think it's 28, 29 million. And if you... When I started out, there were only two real casting directors in all of America, all of Canada. One was in Vancouver, one was in Toronto, one was in, in Montreal. And if you said no to them, like if they said, we want you to play this, you know, dog-raping fellow that steals the loaf of bread from the child, and they end up running over him with a car. And you say, but I, I played that wonderful lead last week where I played the priest, you know, and they say, no, 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 no. <laughs> you don't do this, you don't work for me again. So... And if you said no to one of these casting directors, you lost 30% of your work. So you, I got—I was raised for one week, I'd be playing this wonderful role. Next week, I'd have to go in and rearrange my whole life. And I'm like, that's too, and my whole way of looking at a character and do another. And 
to deal with that process where you never know or process where you never know the 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 job or the character you're going to get you're going to have to bring some life to it it really teaches you how to survive it teaches you how your craft i learned very early that you know there's true dignity in bringing something to life and yes there's true, and there's true and there's true joy to that and and you and you end up getting trained you have to be trained to do this if you make one mistake or burn you know one bridge in canada you don't work again so by the time we get to a place where an american audience even knows who we are you know or an american producer wants to use us we're 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 pretty much well trained to the hilt and have a huge resume behind us. By the time I came to America, I came to the United States and started working in the United States in 82, 81, 82. I already had over 19, you know, featured leads behind me and over a hundred hours of television. It's a lot like the Brits. They come over fully trained, yes. fully professional. I remember on V, my big TV series thing I first did in 1983, I was on the set of V and in Canada, we had to do everything very quickly with very little money and stuff like that and, and do the best we could. And I was standing watching this huge mechanism of a TV show grinding out. And and then one of the ADs came by, one of the assistants, and said, I'm so sorry, Mr. Iron said that we're, that we're moving so quickly. And I went, it's all right. And I had been thinking, my God, they're moving so slowly. <laughs> you know, they're, they're, they're wasting so much money. You know, we... we Everyone gripes about shooting these little features down here in the States that with 22 and 23 days. We were shooting them with 18 and 19 days back in the 70s because we had no money. You know, you had to do what you could, you know. So, yes, Canadians end up being trained very well and have a lot of experience by the time they are allowed to get some kind of a working visa or a green card to come to the States. Well, you know what you described is uh, is similar to akin to how the British actors are trained. You know, in this, like in 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 Shakespeare, where you're going to play every part in the play, you got to play every part in Twelfth Night. Eventually, you got to play every part. You know that you can gender wise or not even gender wise in Romeo and Juliet, so that you really understand. You really have a full comprehension of what it means to be an actor before anybody ever notices you or take you seriously. So, scanner, well, I, go ahead. I heard the story that Tom, after Tom Jones, the movie came out, Sue Mengers came to him, came to Albert Finney and said, come to America, stay in Los Angeles, I'll get you a million plus a picture. And this was back in the early 70s or late 60s. And he said, I'll tell you what, you come to England, you come to London, you get me a raise at the, at the, at the Royal Shakespearean Theater, and I will do that. And she came to London and tried to get him a 10% raise on his contract to play in the Royal Shakespeare and they laughed at her <laughs> and, she, and, and she couldn't do it she couldn't do it and Albert said you failed on your end of the bargain I'm going to stay here you know because <laughs> 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 you know, you, it's <laughs> I, it's just it, it's a wonderful profession it really is a wonderful profession a wonderful business we're in. when did you when did you first discover or was it explained to you early on that not only was you know your face and your your ability to move about on camera and bring forth a, an emotion was was a, a was a real plus for you? But that your voice you have one of the most distinctive voices in entertainment today. Were you did you know that early on? Did an agent tell you that? I mean, it, it extends the life of a performer so much, does it not? Yeah, well, I, I think it helps when you're giving given the gift of you know a voice. And my father, 
where I was raised in the east end of Toronto, I could hear my dad two and a half blocks away when he stood on the front veranda and called for me. I was raised in the working class east end of Toronto, and if I didn't hear it, somebody would, like I'd be at the corner of Boston and Queen, which is about four and a half blocks from where I was raised, and then somebody would come running up and say, I heard your dad call, and I'd go, oh shit, and I'd take off at a full run, you know. Uh, I was raised with, with my father and, and my grandfather's voice that, uh, I'm very fortunate. The other thing is, is I'm trained right up to the tits, for Christ's sakes. I mean, I started off as a writer. I had my first play produced when I was 13. Uh, and I took acting lessons from the time I was um, 18 and a half at the National Film Board uh, until I was 25. 24 hours of classes a week, you know, seven days a week. And uh, and all the work that goes into preparation for that. I went into the, the there was a workshop run by Janine Manatis and a woman named Beryl Fox who invited all the young professionals in Canada to get their version, or, or Janine was part of the triumvirate under Lee Strasberg. She came to Canada to get away from all the um, sexual and political politics of New York at the time as a woman. And she set up and taught her version of the method and her way of doing things at the National Film Board. And we were all brought in as young professionals um, and the whole idea is if we got a specific type of training, we could possibly grow up through the industry in Canada and possibly change the way the Canadian film industry worked. A little, little less of the Shakespearean tighten your ass and project out onto the audience, but actually learn some of the ways of finding an emotional base and the behavior that goes with it. So I was very, very fortunate. You know, I got trained to the tits and, and was able to... Uh, Take advantage of situations when they arose. You know? Would you? Um, um, I had the I had the uh, uh, privileges uh, as a young guy, uh, a privilege that I, I wasted because I was wasted uh, uh, of, of uh, taking a class of, of studying with Lee Strasberg. Uh, would you consider yourself a method actor? I am absolutely method. I've never never worked with Lee and stuff like that. Um, Janine's version. Janine Manatis was her name. She, her, Ilya Kazan, and Arthur Penn were the ones you had to get past when you auditioned. So you auditioned for Kazan? No, I didn't. When you auditioned for the, the actor's studio in New York, you had to get Oh, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, sure, yeah. Before before you got the lead. You got, and uh -huh. the triumvirate was, was Eli Kazan, Janine Manatis, and Arthur Penn. Okay. You know, uh, for example, you're only allowed to audition once a year. And the story goes that when Paul Newman came in, he did a piece, this is way back when, and uh, he auditioned for these three people, and... When he stepped off, they told him to go his way. And Arthur Penn and, and Ely Kazan said, this guy is, we're going to do him a favor and just say no. And Janine said, I want you to do me a favor. I want him to audition again right now. And, they, and it's unheard of. You only do it once a year. So she sent a runner down the street to get Paul Newman and brought him back in. And he came in and auditioned again. And after his second audition, Arthur Penn and, and uh, Ely Kazan said, oh, my God, you're right. He really is good. What she had them do is turn around and face the back of the theater and not look at him. Because she said Paul, Paul Newman was so gorgeous and so electrifying that these two older men, who she said were too sexually challenged about their life, <laughs> saw, him, saw, saw him as all they could do was, my God, you know, and were so envious of him, they couldn't look at his work in a healthy way. Now, that's a woman who was intuitive. Yes, absolutely. You know, and, and, and I got the privilege of having her when she moved to Canada as my teacher. For the last 40 years, she's still teaching me. I check in with her about two or three times a year. You know, you like you or if I, Go ahead. Or if I have a piece, or if I have a piece that I'm emotional, I, I know that I know 
how to approach it. I'm not sure where I'm supposed to have the rise of the emotions of, and, this, and to support the story. And I'll send it to her and have her take her notes on it, you know, and stuff like that. She's a, she's a dear friend. You know, I, uh, um, uh, you've had this career. You do, you, know, you do extremely well. Like I said, when I, I mentioned that you're going to be on, there are people who mention things that they absolutely love that I, I have to go back and look. Oh, he was on that. Oh, he did that. You've done so many things that my particular, not my favorite thing, but one of those things that I noticed, like I said, Duvall and uh, Lonesome Dove, there's another actor, Chris Bauer and The Wire. I spoke with him about a scene that he did there. I go, the scene was so real, you know, and, uh, uh, but you've done all these things and yet you've really had, and I think this is important, especially if there's people listening to who, uh, are thinking about a career in, in entertainment, in the theater, in the life, so to speak. I know you're going to have a really stable life. I know when I uh, uh, ran into you and Karen on the plane, you guys, uh, were, your daughter had just gone off to college, and she was, like, totally heartbroken about it. I went through that experience, my daughter, a few years ago. How have you maintained the balance between what is always, you never know if you're, if this job is your last job in the entertainment business, and then having a normal life where you have a daughter and you have a wife and you go out to dinner and you go to the grocery store, walk the dog, go to Little League and soccer. How have you been able to maintain that balance? Because I know you have. I think it's real. It's true. How do I say this? Look, at, I am not the characters I play. I'm, look, at show the business side of show business has never entertained me. Look, at, I'm not any of my characters. I actually play golf. I like to garden. Yeah, you know, um, I'm a very kind of uh, sedate kind of person and stuff. I don't go around crushing people's heads <laughs> with, mall- with mallets, you know, and and r- ripping the throat out of people because they don't agree with me. You know, that's that's what they pay me money to do. You know, the, the, I think the interesting thing for me has been that, like Karen and I, we just celebrated our thirtieth wedding anniversary, thirty-two years together. You were describing uh, to me when you asked her out the last time I saw you. Yeah, it was. I was so afraid that she was going to say no. I asked her, and, she, and a friend of mine timed it. It took her 27 seconds to say yes. She <laughs> sat there and stared at me. And I thought she'd either had a stroke or I had insulted her so badly she was trying to get a comeback line. And she swears to this day she didn't take that long. She was just running her weekly agenda. That was back in 1983. But, you know, okay, the, the, the gift that I've had with my with my career so far is that, uh, for example, I was on Terminator 4, the set of Terminator 4, a couple of years ago. And, you know, and Chris and everybody's running around, we're doing all this stuff, and I was sitting at Video Village where you watch the replays and stuff, and McGinty McGee, the director, has all these wonderful young ladies running around as his production assistants. And I had this incredibly young and good-looking blonde lady standing beside me, this young lady is probably about 20 or 21, and she'd been kind of looking at me strange for about two days. She found I said, are you all right? She said, can I ask you something, Mr. Ironside? And I said, absolutely. She said, are you any relation to the Ironside that was in Top Gun? <laughs> uh, and and I heard all the, I heard the director and the producer's chairs all creak cause, beside me because they're all kind of nervous. And I, I looked at her and I said, absolutely, yes, I am. And she pumped her fist and said, I knew it. Talent must run in your family. <laughs> very, very proudly walking. She went walking off, and uh, and I turned. I turned to the producers and directors with whatever knows what my face looks like. I looked at them, and I said, "What are you son of a bitches looking at?" You know, I'm old enough to be that that character's father. That was thirty years ago. You know, I mean, it, it's an, an amazing compliment. 
<laughs> talent, ru- talent must run in your family. And I, t- and I told him, and I told him, I said, if you bust her on this, if you embarrass her, I will crush your fucking head. <laughs> you know, you, <laughs> you leave it? her alone. You, you don't get to pick on somebody because they're genuine. You know, because they're being honest. You know, and they all laugh. You know? <laughs> There's a. Uh, I, I have a friend, uh, and you may know him, uh, Michael Massey, who. Um, you know, always plays very evil people and is one of the most peaceful, spiritual, easygoing guys I know, as you are. I, I, I know both of you, and, and I, I've noticed a similarity between both of you that I've thought about, you know, when I'm sitting around thinking about people I know and thinking about art and how does this person achieve this and that. But you oftentimes are playing, you know, the badass, the bad guy, the killer. Michael, we had him speak at a seminar one time, and he goes, I played Satan seven times. It's a job. <laughs> I have a face that my I'll be on an elevator looking at somebody and my wife will kick me in the in the ankle and look at me and wave her finger I have a face that it's best described that my father who's like I said a very well read but working class guy uh, never he only phoned me seven times in my whole life and I counted them I always called him you know Mm -hmm. and and uh, after I did. I think I was doing V or maybe ER. I'm not sure. Somebody, one of the press, I think it was Time or People magazine, called my father in Northern Ontario, Canada, and he picked up the phone. And I had the I had the conversation on tape. And they said, hello, this is uh, People magazine or it's Time magazine. So, uh, Mr. Ryan said, we'd like to talk to you about your, your son. And my dad goes, it's my fault. <laughs> and, they go, and they go, I beg your pardon? He says, he plays all those bad characters. It's my fault. He says he has my face. Says, when I'm thinking, when I'm thinking, everyone thinks I'm angry, and I'm just thinking. I don't know what my face does. And oh, oh God, I'm not allowed to talk to you. I got to go. Bye. And he hung up on them. <laughs> and I was I was over at Warner Brothers about three weeks ago, and uh, I was meeting with somebody for a, for one of their shows and stuff like this. And this casting director I've known for 40 years, 35 years, he came by and said, Michael, how are you doing? Blah, blah, we're talking. He says, I've always meant to tell you, your father called me. <laughs> and and, and, and I, I, I absolutely, my, my asshole just tightens up, you know, because, you know, and, and I said, and how did that go? And he said, he was so wonderful. He, this is the person who, John had cast me in ER back in, I think it was 85, 86, somewhere in there. And John did cast her, and he said to me, he said, your father called and said, thank you so He thanked me. And I said, oh, my God, my dad's been dead nine years now. And I said, he thanked you? He said, yes. I, he said, I know that you people are the, are the people that put talent in front of the people who make decisions. And Michael has had such a career playing hard-edged characters and, and, and you know, people with negative emotions and you put him up for a very very kind of life fulfilling and joyous character this in the ER and I just wanted to thank you for giving him that opportunity he, if he gets the opportunity he'll look after it he'll look after himself but you created the opportunity I want to thank you and and John told me this and it was such it was like from the grave I got a hug from my dad that I never got because he never he was so afraid of influencing his kids in a negative way that he was always there for us if he asked a question but he would not broach me about my career for when he passed i went into his bedroom and we were messing around with his dresser and going through his things all of us nervously i'm the oldest of five kids and and my brother said look at this and he opened up the bottom dresser of bottom drawer of my dad's dresser and every press clipping and everything i'd ever had oh. was there. 
it was like my all the all the stuff from the, the early days in the Globe and Mail and the Toronto Star and the Telegram that no longer exists, all the way up to the People magazine pieces and and pictures and cutouts and stuff like that. And I just sat there and it was like the Japanese have a term called cry for happy. And I just sat on the floor and weep. It was just weeping with you know my dad, you know, and and my brother turned to me and said, "Where's my drawer?" <laughs> you know, <laughs> 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 and, and it's in the garage. <laughs> Man, you know what? That's a great story to end on. If we're ending on that, if we got a, if we got, and then we had we had some sort of glitch there, and uh, uh, so I'm glad we were able to get you back. Did, did Did you hear what I said about my brother? We later found that day all my brother's blueprints. And all his drawings and stuff since he'd been a little kid for all the things he had made from the earliest like candlestick holders all the way up to the furniture beds and, and the and the structure for one of his houses he built and it was like it was like I went thank thank God because it would have been a <laughs> it would have been bad <laughs> it, my middle brother has always become competitive this is uh, I, I can't this stuff I just can't mention even on public radio so but uh, he's always been competitive. But, uh, and that's brothers, you know. I got a, you know, I grew up to uh, work with words, and I got a brother who was an art professor in Los Angeles. While I was talking my way out of stuff, he was drawing me backing off and running. So um, uh, uh, and there was always that. There always, there's always that sibling rivalry, but it's the greatest rivalry and the greatest love. One quick thing before we go, um, you know, as someone who works with a lot of young comics, I tell them I say I don't care how funny you are if you go over the light or show up late. I'm not going to hire you. So do you have any advice for anyone who's starting out? Um, uh, there's several acting coaches in the greater Phoenix area that I told that I was going to be speaking, uh, uh, I was going to be speaking with you, and they, they want their students to be able to hear what you have to say. Any one single piece of advice to anyone who is aspiring to make a living as an actor? Look, at, in, our, in our business, and especially in Los Angeles, if you show up in one place enough, you're going to get a shot. I mean, if a dog shows up on the same street corner or enough, it'll get a shot at a part of a movie or a TV series. The, the, the important thing is to be able to take take advantage of those opportunities when they arise, which means know your work, know what you're going to do with it, be able to take direction, be able to take suggestions from the people. A lot of auditions that actors will go into, because I've produced and I've directed, and you'll give a direction to the actor to see how pliable they are and how directable they are. And they'll be playing this lovely character, and you'll say, do it as if you're frightened and angry. And I've watched actors refuse to do that and say, well, that's not right for the character. Yeah. And they don't get hired. What the director or the producer is doing is trying to find out if you're directable. Yeah. Do what, do what you're told. I, I have, I've, always, I've always known everyone else's dialogue in the scene, too. I learned my dialogue and everyone else's. Because you never know when somebody's going to go up on their lines or they're going to get caught or they're going to get and you want to be able to support what they're doing. So I just learned the whole thing. I just I love what you know, know the landscape you're going into. You, nobody's going to wander off blindly into a landscape if you're hiking or if you're walking around. The same with the scene and the same with auditions, the same with movies, you know. It's like know where you're going, know how to traverse it, know, you know, know where you want to go in that, in that, in that landscape, you know. And, and do it with joy because sometimes an audition... I've told so many people I've helped over the years that sometimes the part is already cast and you're going in there to make the casting director look right. 
having called you in. Sure. You're there to get. You're there to give the director or the producer another look at the character, so they can, um, so they can feel safe about their choice already. And if that casting, if you're not there to support the casting director, he or she is not going to bring you back in. So casting is an opportunity to act. I love it. I, I, I get offered parts all the time, and I'll say, "Well, let me let me come in and show you what I want to do." Or so they say, "No, no, we're offering you to." I say, "You may not want what I want to do." Yeah. <laughs> and and I'll come in and show them. And I've had two or three films to. No, nah, that's not what you consider doing it this way. And I'll go, mm, well, no, because this is what I want to accomplish. That's why that, this part's important to me. And, and, but do you understand what I'm saying? Be prepared. Yes. Be a professional. It's not luck. You're, it's a craft. Know your craft. Learn be how to be a worker amongst workers. As and be respectful. Absolutely. Michael, I can't tell you uh, how thrilled I am that you uh, uh, that you agreed to do this. Like I said, the first time I ever met you, there was a guy moving into my apartment on Hollywood Boulevard, and he and a couple of guys were carrying boxes, and you walked in with a box, and I go, this guy is like a big movie guy, and he's helping this guy. I, I learned a lesson about something that day, which I'll tell you more about the next time I see it, because I was kind of new in a certain endeavor, uh, a, a, a kind of a lifestyle myself, and I go... This guy's in the movies, and he's helping this broke guy who's moving into my kitchen. He's helping him move into my house, and and I learned a lesson that day. And uh, I've always been, and, and I've always always been appreciative of it. So, uh, and I'm also very appreciative that you agreed to do this today. I know that the people that listen to it have learned a lot. Uh, I will be in Los Angeles next week. I hope to run into you and Karen then. And uh, once again, man, thank you so much. And you drive safe back down to Southern California. <laughs> Absolutely, you have a great day, Anthony. And thank you. Thank you very much, Michael Ironside. We will be right back on This American Podcast Comedy Edition on ComedySchoolsRadio.com.